And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, at some levels, last week's podcast uh, was a big success. And uh, I know that because of the feedback that we got. And I also know that the article that came out at Market Watch, and we'll have a link to that uh, certainly here uh, on this um, on the notes to this podcast, that that was well received. In the first uh, two days, we had uh, over sixty thousand uh, opens to read the article. Now, not everybody stays for the whole article, but at least that many people opened it and got it started. I, I do know also I get a sense for how something is going by the by the comment section after the article. And uh, so we had some nice uh, exchanges there in terms of uh, people digging a little deeper. Well, today is uh, a step beyond the ultimate buy and hold portfolio. And we're going to look at a whole bunch of other uh, strategies. Uh, And uh, some because of uh, simplicity some because of higher potential returns. But before we do, before we move to those portfolios, I would like to briefly review what we learned last week because the ultimate buy and hold strategy goes back uh, to the mid-90s when we started working on this, uh, uh, this way of presenting uh, the, the creation of this portfolio. And, um, uh, and I think it's important that you understand the reason that it, that it was developed, and that is that the common benchmark that everybody believed was very difficult to beat was the S&P 500. In fact, there were articles about how nobody could beat the S&P 500. Well, that wasn't true. There was a long history of other asset classes doing better, but this was part of the of the the growth and awareness about index funds. And at that point, the only index fund that the public knew was the S and P five hundred. That was indexing to them. And of course, people who were following the work of dimensional funds realized. There were a lot of other asset classes that you could use to build a portfolio. But the idea was not about hitting a home run with returns. It was about putting together a portfolio that would produce better rates of return than the S&P 500, but at uh, about the same risk, so that the unit of return per unit of risk Uh, was uh, an an advantage of the improved portfolio. Now, when I go back and I look at at the page table 1A, and we've got a link to that in the notes, just very briefly, all it does is do this. It starts with 100% of the money being in the S&P 500, and then in 10% increments, it adds large cap value, small cap blend, small cap value, REITs, international large cap blend, international large cap value, international small cap blend, international small cap value, and finally 
a piece of emerging markets, 10% each. No favorites. Everybody's treated equally. And I got a lot of questions about that. They said, well, wouldn't you have been better off if you did something different? Maybe added a technology index. Maybe uh, you, uh, you, you overweighted more value in the portfolio. There are a um, thousand different ways you could build this portfolio. This one was built on the idea of keeping it very, very simple. And what you found was that with every change, little change in the portfolio, it was an inch up or maybe two inches up in terms of returns so that you started with the S&P 500 at 10.7%. And by the time you got to the uh, the portfolio, what we call seven, which includes all of 10 of those equity asset classes, the return was 12.4%. That's a huge additional return with very little additional volatility. And that's because these asset classes don't always go up and down together. So a couple more things you should know about this table. It is uh, built on index funds that did not exist the S&P 500 did not exist in 1970. The academics have taken the time to recreate it, but it's all hypothetical prior to, uh, uh, to 1976 when, uh, when the fund actually came out. Although it was 1957 that there were 500 stocks in the S&P 500. Prior to that, there were fewer. But all of that doesn't mean a lot because all past returns are hypothetical. It's never going to happen the same way again. There'll be good years and bad years, guarantee it. There'll be years that have very little additional return or very small losses, guarantee that as well. But the series, the sequence of returns will be very different for the next 51 years that are included in this in this study. And another lesson that we learned was that by uh, rebalancing on a monthly basis that you made a lower rate of return than you did on an annual. Uh, and that makes sense, actually. It makes sense because you're taking away from the better performing asset classes and giving to the lower performing asset classes that aren't expected to make as much money in the long run. And by the way, somebody asked asked about, well, what if we just stopped at portfolio four and we created a portfolio that's 25% each S&P 500, U.S. large cap value, U.S. small cap blend, and U.S. small cap value. Forget about the rest of them. Well, we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. But remember, when we showed the addition of each of those 10% increments, we didn't rebalance the whole thing with the S&P 500. We just looked at 90% S&P, 10% large cap value. 80% S&P 500, 10% large cap value, 10% small cap blend, and how did it do? Well, let me just tell you, if you had, in fact, divided the money 25% each amongst large blend, small blend, large value, small value, all U.S., you would have made about a percent and a half better over that period of time. 
And that's a lot. I mean, that's a, the, the, the reality is for every half of percent over long periods of time, it can legitimately be worth an extra million. Now, that table was followed by tables that reflected not a 50-50 U.S. international, but 70% U.S., 30% international. And the returns changed a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. Uh, for example, in the case of the, uh, let's just look out at the portfolio seven with the 70 30, 70 US, 30% international, it reduced the return by one tenth of 1%. And it isn't that the additional one tenth of 1% was, would not be worth capturing. But it does say that whether you want to be 50-50 U.S. international or 70-30, the returns are likely to be very similar over a long period of time. So that's a quick run-through. And the bottom line here is, remember, the idea of developing this portfolio back in the 90s was to create a portfolio that gave investors a chance to make more than the S&P 500 without exposing them to much additional, or in some cases, no additional volatility. And very little difference in the size of the, the losses in the worst of years. But now, I want to go to table 2A. The headline says, Alternative Equity Portfolio Tables. This one is 50-50 U.S. International. And uh, what it shows are the returns of these different strategies we'll talk about in just a minute. Their annualized compound rate of return, what $100,000 would have grown to, and the standard deviation, the volatility of each of these portfolios. Now, I kind of break them into two categories. There's the category of strategies that are built to be simple. They are built to, to in essence, recreate uh, the, the ultimate buy and hold strategy that has 10 funds, but instead of 10, only has four. Uh, and in a couple of, of other combinations, we'll even have fewer. But we wanted to look at what you could do if you simply used four funds, in one case, we used U.S. only, four funds, 25% each in large blend, large value, small blend, small value. And another one that's worldwide instead of just U.S. That would again be uh, a large value and a small value and a large blend and a small blend but to vary the, which, whether international or, or U.S. For example, you use the U.S. S&P 500 for large blend, and that would be 25%. And then 25% would be in international large value, and then 25% in international small blend, and 25% in U.S. small value. So it's basically... The same balance or exposure to blend, large and small, and value, 
U.S. and international uh, that that uh, we have in the ten fund strategy. No, there's no no REITs and no emerging markets. To give that perspective, the REITs uh, do not add much except they lower the volatility of the other portfolio. Excuse me. The, the, and, and in fact, the emerging markets do add some return. So those two kind of offset each other, and you'll see what I mean in, uh, in a second. I'm talking about in terms of the overall return. So these two strategies... Are only they're only trying to do exactly the same thing as the original strategy portfolio that was put together in the mid '90s, and that is to make better return than the S&P 500 or the total market index. Those two are virtually the same over a long period of time, but to do better than those large cap blend uh, uh, indices, uh, and 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 so. Here's what happened. When we look back, and I'm looking now at Table 2A, Alternative Equity Portfolio Tables, Perens, 50% U.S., 50% International. And what I see with the U.S., for, well, let me start with the S&P 500. The, the, what we called Portfolio 1, 100,000 grew to 17.9 million. And the ultimate buy and hold, that was Portfolio 7, 38,444,000. So more than doubling the, the total return over that 51-year period. The four-fund combo that's worldwide-based, remember some U.S., two U.S. Uh, funds or asset classes and two internationals, but the same exposure to large cap value and small cap value and large and small cap blend. That was finished with that $100,000 investment with 38521000 about 2% more per year than the U.S. only combo. Again, that is not only are those two close, but they're both close to the return of the ultimate buy and hold with all 10 asset classes. Now, I continue to hold in my own portfolio the 10 funds. And the reason I do is because I do think the return will be similar. And I will get that return with a wider group, more asset classes including the, the REIT, which is, doesn't add much in return, a little tiny bit, but reduces volatility. And then uh, having the uh, emerging markets uh, in the portfolio. I'll have two more asset classes. I'll have some small cap value U.S. and some small cap value international, some small cap blend U.S., some small cap blend international. So there are more ways to slice and dice, but it still is approximately the same in terms of exposure to the asset classes. So that's one goal. Find a simpler way 
to capture this additional return than having to own 10 funds. And, and we'll be in future weeks talking about the challenges of trying to do this inside of an, a 401k plan that doesn't have any international small cap. We'll discuss that. And, and for many investors, it's just going to be impossible to be a lookalike. But let's come as close as we can. Now, the other portfolios I wish to talk about on this recording are not built to be, in essence, uh, similar to the, to the S&P 500 in terms of risk. They are built to make higher rates of return because the portfolio itself is, in fact, more risky. Let me just give you an example. And there are three of them. And they're all legitimate. Uh, we'll talk a little bit here and in future podcasts about how you might use these portfolios. And uh, that one, one of these is a single fund strategy, just like the S&P 500 is a single fund strategy. A lot of people do that. And I can see that some investors might want to use a single fund strategy in a portion of a portfolio, maybe an iris sitting over there that uh, hasn't been added to for years, or or maybe if if uh, you have some money for a, a grandchild put aside, might want to be all small cap value. But here are the three the three portfolios. One is all value. Portfolio ten. It is 25% U.S. large cap value, 25% U.S. small cap value, 20% international large cap value, 20% international small cap value, and 10% emerging markets. And what do we know looking back over this 51-year period? that all-value portfolio. Now, let's remember that we were getting around 12.4 for the ultimate buy and hold versus 10.7 for the S&P 500. Now we're talking historically about a 13% compound rate of return. But you did, in fact, pick up additional volatility in the portfolio. So you took more risk. And instead of the 100,000 growing to seven or 18 million or 38 million or 35 million or again 38 million, with the all value portfolio, it's over $51 million. And that's the difference of six tenths of 1% more getting 13% instead of 12.4. Now, the next portfolio, and by the way, that's still a fairly conservative portfolio. It's got a lot of large cap in it. And uh, whether you look at a large cap value or a large cap blend, you're, you're certainly not going to have the, the high volatility of small cap issues. But the next portfolio is all small cap value. That portfolio is just two funds. One is a 50% in U.S. small cap value, 
and 50% in international small cap value. Now that portfolio, going back over that long period of time, is even more risky in terms of volatility. It is even more productive in terms of return, uh, 14.2% leading to $85.5 million. Now, I, I, I don't, I, I shouldn't even say $85 million. I probably should say more <laughs> than the others because people think, oh my God, it's going to do 85 No, who knows what it's going to do? No one knows. As a matter of fact, I would have to warn you that a lot of people are saying, much as they did in the late 70s, when they talked about the death of equities, people stopped believing in equities as a good place to put money for the long term. Uh, that happened after the, after the Depression, too. The market cost people so much pain and, and, and bankruptcies and all the things that, that left a, a, a really strong image of the safety of investing in equities. Few people trusted equities after the Depression. Few people trusted equity, equities after 1973 and 74. The same thing is going on right now. A lot a lot of people are saying the value uh, premium is dead, just like they did for 30 years with small cap. The small cap did not outproduce large cap for 30 years. And so it was considered to be gone before it came roaring back. So you have to make the decision. Would I want to have a part of my my portfolio. Remember, you got some Roths, you got some regular IRAs, you got some 401k, got taxable accounts, accounts for children and grandchildren. All of those potential applicants for the small cap value portfolio. And that's all small cap. That is U.S. and international. And then there's the all U.S. small cap value, uh, which means you have 100% in a small cap value fund. Now, I wouldn't be shocked if somebody said, would it be a good idea to spread that amongst two or three or four different small cap value funds because I want to diversify the risk of having all my eggs in one risky, volatile basket. I could see where people would do that. What we do, of course, is we give you, for example, in Chris's best in ET best in class ETF recommendations. Not only does he pick the one that he think is number one, but he also gives you a few others as alternatives. So you could use those alternatives to spread the risk. And it turns out that in some cases, um, rebalancing monthly. Uh, was similar, uh, but with the all small cap value, uh, it was 13.9 uh, with monthly and 14.2 with annually. There was a two-tenths of 1% difference in favor of annually with the all value portfolio. There was two-tenths with the four-fund worldwide Combo. There were there was a, an advantage of one tenth for the annual rebalancing 
with the US 4 fund and uh, an advantage of three tenths with the uh, rebalancing on a monthly, on an annual basis over the monthly uh, with the ultimate buy and hold. So I hope you'll take the time to look at a table uh, 2A. Now, there is a 2B, and 2B is about the decision to be 70% U.S. and 30% international. And in uh, some cases, the 50-50 was better. In some cases, the 70-30 U.S. international was better. Uh, it varied, uh, I guess, depending on whether we, lo- we were looking at all value portfolios versus uh, the combinations of growth and value. But here's what you have at your disposal. You have table 2A and 2B to look at. Now, this is not the end of what I want you to study because the next thing I'd like you to study is going to be in front of you next week. And what that is will be the fine-tuning tables. So you can track all of these different strategies and see in 100% equity how you would have done one year at a time and what would have been the best times and the worst of times so you can see the the size of the losses that you would have sustained Uh, by having an all-value portfolio. These are really serious decisions because, yes, I'd like to have you have your money in that that makes the most money for you, but I also want you in something that makes it more likely for you to stay the course because at the end of a long period, staying the course is more important than who had a hot run and made a lot of money in a short period of time. So I hope these uh, will be helpful to you. Uh, We still may not have quite uh, helped enough to give you the final answer. Again, you're going to get some of that in the the coming uh, next week. And then the week after that, we're going to focus on uh, putting money into all these different strategies Uh, with a monthly contribution starting in 1970 with $83.33 a month invested so that you pick up whatever happened exactly one month at a time. And, uh, And you'll be able to see, and I didn't mention this before, yes, you're going to see 100% in equities and how that did and what the risk was. But you're going to see 90-10, 80-20, 70-30, 90% equities, 10% fixed income, 80% equities, 20% fixed income, etc. So this is what we do to try to help you make a decision. Now, let me tell you an easier way to make that decision. You meet with somebody who understands all of this stuff, and they ask you a bunch of questions, And they help you pick the one that's appropriate. The reason we have to produce all of this excess baggage, all these extra numbers, is to try to help you find that on your own. Because if you find that on your own, you keep more money in in your investments because 
You're not paying anybody else to help you. Uh, That's a big decision. And as you know, over a lifetime, uh, that need to ask others for help uh, is uh, it costs you money. And there's nothing evil about that. Uh, a lot of us like somebody else to take care of stuff. I even have an investment advisor. Not that I need to have them explain this stuff to me, but I want them to take care of it. I don't want to deal with it. I'm, I'm retired. I'm having more fun teaching uh, than managing money. I hope that helps. As always, we're looking for questions. Now, look, the problem recently with this, this large number of tables and, and, and statistical information that I want to get, I want to go through and keep it, keep it coming so that you stay with it and make it all the way through. I don't want to break it up with uh, as best I can. I may, I may have, I may actually play a podcast along the way of an interview that I had at Morningstar, or maybe we'll just make it an extra uh, podcast for one week. But the bottom line is we're going to have to wait on the questions. It doesn't mean that that Chris and I not, might not answer a few questions directly, but we are right now, Chris is writing his book, and boy, it's a doozy. Uh, we've, we've seen the first draft, and for those of you who are involved in the two funds for life strategy, and that's not reflected here, we'll talk more about that later in this process. Um, it's it really is a a great book and it takes you a lot deeper into two funds uh, than than the uh, uh, we're talking millions book that Rich Buck and I wrote together. So I hope all that helps. Uh, for those of you who don't have these uh, tables I've, I've referenced, I hope you'll go to the website, look at the podcast, download those tables, and. Uh, and, and, and review them. I think they're self-explanatory, and, uh, and, and so uh, you won't have to go back and listen to this uh, podcast all over, um, but if not, it might require a second listen, but you're making a big decision that I think could have a really big payoff over the long term. Thank you for all of your support. Thank you for all of you who went to Amazon and wrote a review on our book of all of the written reviews, and they're coming in f- fast and furious lately. Uh, we've only had one four-star review, written review. The rest of them have been fives, and that, that that's fantastic. I, I, I hope you're not just feeling sorry for an old man. Uh, I hope the book really deserves uh, that, uh, uh, that rating. Uh, and we've had a lot of students come recently and and leave a review. That is absolutely marvelous because there are going to be other young people reading those reviews and say, well, maybe this really is a book that would be good for a first-time investor. I hope that happens. And to all of you, by the way, we've had a number of contributions. Thank you very much that are anonymous. So I I don't have the ability to write you an email and say thank you, but we certainly do appreciate the help that many of you have been in uh, supporting uh, the effort. Uh, Not everybody volunteers their time, 
uh, without pay, like uh, Chris and Daryl and myself. Uh, and and so uh, we have lots of things we're working on, including updating, upgrading our uh, website to make it uh, more effective. And, uh, well, you'll see. Lots of good things coming. Thanks for listening. Oh, and think about sharing this, by the way, with other friends. Uh, I suspect uh, you may think your friends uh, might not be able to deal with all these numbers, but maybe have them start with the uh, the first one on the ultimate buy and hold so they kind of get a sense of where we're going on this. Thanks. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.